Hello, everyone. This is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help support and keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. So, during this week when we are in the United States, we are watching our electoral system implode. I would like to go back to a topic that may seem particularly relevant, which is the Dark Age. So I want to go back to the Dark Ages, in a sense, which is a very old-fashioned way of referring to the beginning of the Middle Ages, anywhere from the breakdown of the Roman Empire up to about 1,000 or so. This is a subject that I have spoken about before, but I want to go back to it again and look in more detail, specifically at the Dark Age narrowly defined, just from the end of the Roman Empire in the 400s up until the rise of the Carolingians and Charlemagne's Empire about 300 years later. So just that particular period of about three centuries, about which we know the least, and when power and authority were most fragmented and decentralized in Western Europe in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire. And I want to go back to it because a few people have noted that they liked points in this podcast where I talk about people's resilience and their ability to rebuild and adjust to new circumstances, even following disasters. And I think that the very beginning of the Middle Ages, in the wake of the breakdown of the empire, is the biggest example of that that I've seen. And I think a lot of people maybe are interested or attracted to this subject because of the anxieties that many people have now about the fragmentation and the dysfunction in modern Western states and the anxiety about how people are going to adjust to the future, the new political conditions, the new environmental conditions. So let's go back to the Dark Age. And the Dark Age, I think, illustrates something that I try to get across a lot when I discuss history with people in person, which is that human beings are pattern-loving creatures. We like to find and make patterns out of the things we see around us, and we like to make order and predictability in what might otherwise seem to be chaos. We, many of us, might have images in our minds from watching movies about the zombie apocalypse or The Walking Dead that... When people face problems, society falls into a kind of state of nature, and we all become kind of wolves snapping at one another and fall into total chaos. And there's even, I think, on on some people's part, there's this sort of fear that this could happen at any moment if, you know, there's a power blackout or something like that. But I really don't see it that way. I, you know, I might end up eating my words at some point. But if you look at history, this is not how people really behave. When people are faced with problems and dangers and challenges, they come together and they figure out plans and they figure out new ways to survive and make order out of the chaos. And the very early Middle Ages are a kind of instance of that, although, as I'll explain, 
the chaos and danger that people faced in this time can be easily exaggerated. And if we look at the scholarship, the current more recent scholarship about the early Middle Ages and about this first dark age strictly defined from about the 5th to 8th centuries, the scholarly view is evolving and changing pretty dramatically. In fact, scholars who even until recent decades sometimes still used the term Dark Age, have more and more shifted to speaking about the entire later Roman era and the early Middle Ages under this new umbrella heading of Late Antiquity. And many of them, although this is still controversial, many of them emphasize the continuities and the survival of many similar ideas and customs from the Roman Age into the early Christian Age. And A lot of this new scholarship is fueled by alternative forms of knowledge and evidence that historians haven't paid attention to before, which is particularly relevant to the Dark Age. So if we still do use that term, it's because this is the period of time from which we have the fewest written documents. So it's the most unknown and mysterious if you are a traditional historian who sees written documentation as the correct fundamental material for history. But in the Dark Age, archaeology is increasingly filling in that void. Most people at this time were illiterate. There was only a small minority of people who could read and write. But nonetheless, people continued to produce magnificent artwork, much of it in precious metals, gemstones, ceramics. And within the past hundred years, there have been massive important discoveries of archaeological material, including burial hoards like the one at Sutton Hoo in eastern England, an Anglo-Saxon treasure hoard from probably the 7th century, which was only first found in 1939 and then could only be excavated and examined after the end of World War II. And there have been many other smaller ones all around Europe as well. Also, the techniques of archaeology, of examining material evidence for historical information, has improved massively. There's been the introduction of carbon dating, of better pollen analysis for determining the different natural environments where a person or an object existed. There's dendrochronology, the determination of when and where wood came from based on the tree rings. And this buildup of new knowledge about these centuries shows that it, in fact, was not a time of chaos and war, at least not nearly as much as many of the written documents seem to suggest. There was, in fact, considerable trade, including long-distance trade. There was some degree of prosperity, and there was important innovation especially at the base of society. And archaeology can tell us more about the ordinary people, peasant farmers and villagers, and can show us more about their lifestyle, their standard of living, than you can glean from the small scattering of written documents. And all of these forms of evidence show us that many of the textual sources that we traditionally look to are not all that reliable. The migrations or invasions of barbarian peoples from northern and eastern Europe into the Roman Empire were apparently not all that big as they've been described. The Roman world was not overrun 
and that the violence that took place in these migrations or invasions was really only sporadic. This was not a sort of scourge of God like people sometimes described Attila the Hun charging in and slaughtering people and destroying civilization in their wake. Far from it. And logically, we should be able to tell this by going around Europe and seeing how many Roman monuments and foundations of Roman towns and walls actually survive from the Roman era. So this was certainly not a reign of destruction as some of the Roman chronicles might have claimed, although it is true that there was some pillaging, raiding, and slaughter of soldiers and of civilians in this era that did happen from time to time as people crossed the Roman border and tried to gain power in Roman territory. One historian has compared this sporadic violence to the incidents of modern-day terrorism, which happens both in the West and in the Middle East. Sometimes there are bombings, sometimes there are shootings, and when these things happen, they are tragic and horrifying. They do have an effect on people, but nonetheless, life must go on, right? Cities are not abandoned. Markets or schools that have been attacked, people return to them. Life continues, right? So maybe that is more how we should think of the occasional violence that did accompany the breakdown of the Roman Empire and the creation of these new societies in the Dark Age. The written chronicles that we do have tend to be by Roman authors. They can be biased. They exaggerate the brutality, the supposed savagery of barbarians, as they called them. And also, in addition, the sources written by the descendants of barbarians themselves probably also exaggerate their numbers, their fighting prowess, their power. Whereas, in fact, it seems that the migrations of peoples into the Roman Empire were not all that big, and they were not reigns of terror and destruction. This new scholarship and this new view about the Dark Ages, as I said, it comes a lot from archaeology and those bodies of evidence. It's sort of trickled little by little into mainstream historical scholarship, but it still has really not penetrated popular consciousness, right? I think this is why a lot of the things that I'm saying right now might sound surprising to many people. Some might be very skeptical. But this new viewpoint has been summed up particularly in a book called Barbarians to Angels by Peter Wells, who is not a historian, but an anthropologist. So he is drawing on these new sorts of evidence that can help to reconstruct the social history and the everyday life of people in the Dark Age. And he's sort of digested it for a wider non-academic audience. And so I'm drawing a good deal on his book as well as other sources. Many of the conclusions that he puts forward in Barbarians to Angels are, I think, still somewhat disputed in the field. They're not consensus views, but they are interesting counterpoints to consider. In his book, he points to many positive aspects and accomplishments even of the Dark Ages, that are usually ignored in our popular conception. There was apparently considerable rural prosperity and a fairly good standard of living for the ordinary people at the bottom of society, more so than 
would come later in other eras like the late Middle Ages, the time of the bubonic plague. Great new art forms and artworks developed, things like church architecture, illuminated manuscripts. There are great masterpieces like the Book of Kells and Lindisfarne Gospels. There was a remarkable surviving of learning and scholarship, despite the political breakdown. And I would add some points that he does not specifically mention in his book, but there are specific social and political changes that came with the transition from the Roman era to the Dark Age that are worth bearing in mind, such as the end of Roman slavery. Slavery probably was not completely stamped out in the early Middle Ages, but it massively declined due to, for one thing, the loss of Roman imperial power that could back up the authority of slaveholders and suppress the frequent slave rebellions that happened through the Roman era, and also the introduction of more free and egalitarian norms from the Germanic tribes that came into the empire. There also was an end to many Roman practices and customs that we would today probably consider savage or barbaric, such as the practice of gladiatorial fights, where fighters, including many slaves, were pitted against one another in fights to the death for popular entertainment. So this went into decline and died out, probably both because of the declining population in the cities and also because of the rise of Christianity and Christianity's disapproval of those sorts of violent displays. If we look at Wells's book, he uses this title, Barbarians to Angels, and he says that his title is a reference to a story whereby an admirer of art saw some of the great illuminated manuscripts like the Lindisfarne Gospels and remarked it looks as if these works were created by angels, when in fact we know that the people who made those great early medieval works were descendants of so-called barbarians of these supposedly savage people who came out of the northern European forests and plains and invaded Roman territory. So he's pointing out an irony. I think that the title also evokes another sort of famous story, which may or may not be true, involving Pope Gregory. At one point, reportedly, he saw a group of barbarian children brought as captives into a town, and he asked about who they were, and he was told that they were Angli, meaning they were barbarians from the tribe that we would call Angles. And Gregory reportedly said, I do not see Angli, I see Angeli. In other words, I do not see Angles, but angels. And I think that that story, too, has been passed on and resonates because it captures this strange duality where people who had been seen as brute savages violently pressing their way into the Roman world ended up becoming the leaders and the managers of a new society, a new social order, and you could say even a new high culture. With all of that in mind, I want to discuss what are the basic facts that we know about the Dark Age? How did society work? And how did people, including ordinary people, live and adjust in this new world? 
And as I said, I'm going to focus on basically this era from about 476 with the end of the Roman imperial throne up until about the mid-700s, which is when the Carolingian dynasty comes to power and begins to build the empire over which Charlemagne rules. So we're talking about this sort of deepest of the Dark Age with the least surviving written information and the greatest localization and fragmentation. And I'm going to talk about also, you could say, sort of the ground zero zone of the Dark Age, which is basically Western Europe. I'm not going to talk about the Eastern Roman Empire, also called the Byzantine Empire, which continued to rule in the East for another thousand years. I'm not going to talk about the rise of Islam and the Islamic Empire, which I already discussed in two other lectures about Islam. I'm not going to talk about the Carolingian Empire or Charlemagne, which many scholars, including Wells, look at as sort of the flourishing or fulfillment of the promise and progress of the Dark Age. I'm going to leave that out. I'm also not going to discuss Britain, because Britain is certainly part of this process in this age, and I'll probably mention it a few times. I already mentioned the Sutton Hoo treasure as one example. But Britain is very interesting and complicated. It was a particularly rich and complex crucible of new medieval ways of life after the withdrawal of the Roman forces. And I'm going to probably leave that till later. I'm, I maybe will still do another series just focusing on Britain in the Middle Ages, which is a whole fascinating world unto itself. So I'm not going to talk about the Byzantines, about Islam, about Charlemagne and his empire. I'm not going to talk much about Britain. And I'm also not going to get deep into the details of the breakdown and dissolution of the Western Roman Empire. That's the phenomenon that forms the entire background, right, for the Dark Age and the creation of medieval Europe. But I don't want to get into the weeds about that. That's a whole other complicated subject unto itself. Why and how did the Roman Empire break down? So I'm going to focus basically on continental Europe, or what, what we would call the medieval Latin West, more or less what is now Germany, the Low Countries, France, the Alps, Italy, and Spain and Portugal. So more or less from the North Sea and the Baltic Sea down to the Mediterranean, and from the Alps westward, which is roughly what was Western Christendom in the early Middle Ages. How did people live? How did they adjust? And how did they build up what we now think of as medieval society? So as I said, I don't want to get into deep into the details of the breakdown of the Western Roman Empire, but I will make a few comments on it. People, of course, debate what caused the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, right? This is a huge topic for centuries, really, at least since Edward Gibbon's massive classic, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire from 1776. Gibbon himself put a lot of emphasis on the rise of Christianity. He saw that as sort of sapping the strength and integrity of the empire from within. Other recent theories point to malaria, especially in the center of the empire in Italy. Others point to problems with the currency, the money supply, and the gradual debasement of currency and price inflation that resulted from that. 
Of course, another major point that you can't leave out is the migration of barbarians, of mainly Germanic peoples from the north and the east, raiding and attacking along the Rhine and Danube borders and eventually crossing into the empire. And surely that must be part of of this process. Recent scholars also emphasize the internal feuding that went on within the empire, especially during the third century crisis. And this internal feuding among Roman officials and especially Roman generals was very serious. It led to outbreaks of violence. It led to civil war. You can think of Constantine's battles with Maxentius that he had to fight before he could decisively claim rulership of the Western Empire. And indeed, according to recent scholars, more Romans in this era of decline, more Romans were killed by other Romans than by barbarians. So for all of these reasons, it's very hard to decisively pin down one particular reason why the empire declined and fell, right? And that kind of simple explanation is very appealing, but it's probably impossible to ever untangle all the vicious cycles that brought the empire down gradually over the course of hundreds of years. And in fact, as I would argue, this is the wrong question to ask. To pose the question in that way is to imply that once a large empire exists, ruling most of the known world around it, the natural state of affairs is for it to continue on forever which when you think about it is a very imperialistic assumption. And it only makes sense in that light that Edward Gibbon, when he famously posed the question in this way, when he formulated the question in this way, he was thinking from the point of view of England in the 1700s, a rising imperial power. In fact, when we look at the empire, a massive empire like the Romans had was a very difficult enterprise to maintain, and in fact was quite precarious, both physically and socially. Enormous infrastructure of roads, bridges, harbors, aqueducts, city defenses had to be constantly maintained over thousands of miles in basically all directions around Rome. Order had to be maintained and law enforced over tremendous territories with diverse populations. And in order to achieve this, a great deal of power always had to be delegated to officials, generals, military officers stationed in far-flung places. And the loyalty and cooperation of all of these people had to be somehow ensured, even when they were thousands of miles away and had their own money, their own troops that they could use to assert their own power. There were enormous things that could go wrong in all kinds of ways all around the empire and sometimes did go wrong. There were disasters, there were infrastructural failures, there were rebellions, coups. And so in this way, the real question that we should be asking is not why did the Roman Empire decline and fall, it's why did it last so long? That's what really demands explanation. And in that light, when we turn the question around, certain things become clear. 
The Roman Empire was able to last so long, for one thing, because they were lucky and they had a remarkably easy time politically and militarily in maintaining their control of the Mediterranean world. So if we look around the territory and the frontiers of the empire in the four cardinal directions, to the east was Persia. And it happens that at the time when the Roman Empire rose, Persia was in a period of weakness and disorder. And the old Hellenistic dynasty had fallen and authority had broken down. And so they had a weak Persia to the east. To the north, there were these barbarian tribes, which we'll talk about more, but they were remarkably passive. Their populations were small and spread out, and they seemed to have had no particular interest in really even interacting with the Romans, let alone attacking them. So they had quiet northern and eastern front. To the south was the Sahara Desert. There was nobody there with any particular intention or ability to take on the Romans. And to the west was, of course, the Atlantic Ocean. And nobody showed up by sea. No Mayan invaders came in ships and started landing in Portugal or Britain. So they were fortunate to basically have no real challenges to their territorial claims or even their their trade and communication around their empire. Now, this would change, of course. Persian power had a resurgence under the Sassanid dynasty. The passive northerners did start to migrate down and press upon and challenge the Roman borders in the north and the northeast. And it seems that once this began, it fed into a series of vicious cycles. You might think of it as kind of an avalanche-like breakdown of the Roman system, although it took a very long time, 300 or so years. So I think if we look at the situation from this angle, then the question is no longer what went wrong, but rather what did people do when they were faced with this situation? And how was a new society created? Well, in order to know that, we have to look at who the groups, the new groups were, who came into Roman territory and who became so disproportionately influential in reshaping society as Roman authority broke down. And those are people that, of course, the Romans called barbarians, having borrowed that term from Greek. And when Greeks and Romans used this term, it could be basically neutral most of the time. It just meant people who don't speak our language and who are outside of our civilization. Sometimes early on in in the Greek Golden Age, it could be used in a very neutral or respectful way. You know, Herodotus could refer to people like Egyptians or Persians as barbarian, even though he respected them and he respected the power and splendor and sophistication of their civilizations too. By the later Roman era, it seems that there was such a high value placed upon Romanitas or Romanness, mastery of the Latin language and of Roman law and customs, that by that time, there was more and more of a pejorative connotation to being a barbarian. And it took on maybe a bit more shades of meaning like we would think of today, meaning savage, violent, unable to appreciate the advantages of civilization. 
But that's why it's so dangerous and we have to be so cautious when we hear this word today, because the evidence shows that these barbarians who came into the empire across the Danube frontier during the breakdown of Roman power, that one of their major motivations was that they admired the Roman Empire. They wanted to be part of it. And in their different ways, they adopted Romanitas, Roman life. And in their view, and in the view of many of the peoples that they conquered and ruled over, Roman life did continue in a sort of revised, updated form. So who are these so-called barbarians who became so critical in the creation of the medieval world? They were scattered tribes and ethnic groups existing usually in sort of loose confederations of villages and bands. In northern and eastern Europe, they were apparently mostly Germanic, so they had a sort of loose ancestral relation, and they spoke different Germanic languages that could be more or less similar. They migrated, it seems, southward and westward towards the Roman borders and eventually began to press across those borders. When we see depictions of these barbarian peoples, in art from the modern age, they're often depicted in all kinds of outrageous ways. For one thing, there are famous paintings you may have seen of the barbarians sacking Rome and tearing down statues, and they're shown naked. Uh, For one thing, this is the opposite of the truth. These people were coming from colder climates. They were riding on horses. They were not naked at all, but in fact much more clothed than Mediterranean peoples tended to be. If you were walking around the Roman Empire at this time and you saw someone naked, it was probably a Greek person at a gymnasium or a bath. The barbarians wore clothes, furs, cloaks, and often they wore trousers. And it seems that that style of clothing was introduced into most of Europe by these Germanic barbarians and has persisted. Also, as I mentioned, they're often shown tearing down statues, torching buildings, and so on. This was generally not true. There was destruction, there were fires as part of raiding and pillaging, but it seems the barbarians much more often liked symbols of Roman authority and power and often adopted them and mimicked them in their own art. So they were not out to destroy Roman life. They were not driven by a sort of blind hatred or animosity towards Roman civilization. And I think that part of why maybe people perpetuate that notion is because we're sort of projecting some of our own feelings onto them, right? It's often frustrating living in a civilized society and having to do things like wear clothes and (laughs) obey authority. And it's natural to feel a little rebellious and a little resentful, wanting to, you know, maybe smash some windows. And we easily then project those feelings onto these barbarian people who, by all evidence, didn't think that way. So what else do we know about who they were and where they were from more specifically? As I said, they were mostly Germanic-speaking. Most of them, it seems, were semi-nomadic. They would set up long-term camps or villages, which were bases both for hunting 
and also for some farming and gardening, but they also remained mobile, right? They wouldn't necessarily stay for years or generations in one site. They would pick up and move as conditions changed. We know some about their lifestyle and their beliefs from archaeology, from linguistic evidence, and also some from chronicles and histories. Most of these are written later by descendants of these peoples, like Angles or Goths. There is one example of a contemporary written text describing these Germans, written by the Roman senator and philosopher Tacitus. According to Tacitus and his description, which he wrote in the second century during the height of the Roman Empire, he says that these people were very free-spirited and independent. They liked to live in a spread-out pattern, And according to him, if a Germanic tribesman had his cottage and his household in the forest and he was able to see the smoke rising from another house's chimney, he would consider that too crowded and too close together and he'd want to pick up and move. So that may capture a little bit of of the mentality of some of these Germanic peoples, but, you know, it may be an exaggeration. According to Tacitus... Power in these Germanic societies was very divided and you could say decentralized. The tribes or bands tended to have a chieftain or king, and that word we use now, king, is from a Germanic origin. And these chieftains or kings would lead not only their tribe, but also a smaller band of warriors who were personally close to him and might include family members or sort of blood brothers, fictive kin, who pledged loyalty to him. And according to their norms, these warrior bands would have to fight for the sake of both personal honor and also for gold, right? They might fight against other groups in order to take their treasure, And then that treasure would be parceled out to the fighters who had performed honorably. So gold is is valued in and of itself, and it also is a symbol of honor and status. So apart from the king and his band of warriors who had special status, there also could be larger gatherings of all men or all adults of a group. And this gathering, it seems, was called a thing or a moot. And both of those terms seem to have survived and been passed down for many centuries. So this is how Tacitus describes the sort of political decision-making process among the Germans. Quote, Concerning minor matters, the chiefs deliberate. But in important affairs, all the warriors are consulted, although the subjects referred to the common people for judgment are discussed beforehand by the chiefs. Unless some sudden and unexpected event calls them together, they assemble on fixed days. When the crowd is sufficient, they take their place fully armed. Then the king or a chief addresses them. If an opinion is displeasing, they reject it by shouting. If they agree to it, they clash their spears. So you can see here there's a sort of connection between the ability and the willingness to fight and the entitlement to a voice and a role in the decisions of the tribe. And it seems that these gatherings, these things or moots, are really the ancestors of European parliaments that we see today, just as much as the Roman Senate. You know, the oldest parliament still meeting in the world is 
the Icelandic Althing, which just means the general gathering. And it's been going on for more than a thousand years, I believe, now. And similarly, if we look at the British Parliament, which, you know, evolved basically out of the councils of leading nobles who had to advise the king and ratify his decisions, that parliament has evolved and grown and still meets. And this description of the gathered warriors shouting at decisions they disapprove of, it might sound uh, kind of familiar to people who have watched the British House of Commons. So this description from Tacitus of Germanic society really paints a picture of a remarkably free and almost democratic world, which can sound in some ways strangely modern at the same time that it's primitive. But Tacitus himself may have been biased. We can't be sure that this is an entirely accurate picture. Tacitus had his own political agenda. He was a Roman senator. He opposed the consolidation of power in the hands of the emperors. And he wanted to make the point that people did not have to live this way, and that, in fact, in his view, these Germanic peoples, these barbarians, had more liberty and more dignity than the Roman citizens who were being reduced to subjects of an authoritarian ruler. Right. So, so we can't. We have to take this with, with a bit of a grain of salt. Tacitus also mentions the importance of women in Germanic society, which is not at all uncommon in warlike societies, where men were so often fighting and probably many men died in battle. Uh, women were depended on to keep society running. Diplomatic marriages were very important to keeping the peace among these barbarian tribes and bands. And sometimes when they were under strain, certain groups like the Goths actually had to encourage women to train for war and to train girls. So if we look at the archaeological remains relating to these peoples, it seems that they had sort of temporary, even makeshift villages. But there would sometimes be an important structure, and they would center on a chieftain's hall, which were fairly intricate wooden structures with large chambers for the gathering of men or men and women, with a central hearth, and with complex, intricately carved and decorated rafters. None of these chieftain halls survive. There are only post holes from which we can roughly reconstruct where they stood. But there are descriptions of them, especially you might know in the great Anglo-Saxon epic Beowulf. So it seems that people living more or less this sort of lifestyle lived pretty peacefully alongside the Roman Empire during the Pax Romana. But in the late 100s AD, it seems that certain groups, especially a mysterious group called the Macromani, increasingly migrated southward and began to concentrate close to the northern frontiers. And they put more and more pressure on the Roman border, sometimes surreptitiously crossing, making raids, trying to migrate into the empire. And this took up a lot of the time and attention of Roman emperors, beginning with Marcus Aurelius. 
In the third and fourth centuries, we see more different groups coming down and following the path that had been laid out by the Makromani. More migration, border crossing, raiding involves other Germanic groups, such as Vandals, Alamanni, Suevi, Franks, and eventually, and most importantly, the Goths who turn out to be probably the most impactful Germanic group that starts to attack the empire. For a long time, it seems that only small bands or individual families would actually cross the border and try to settle in imperial territory. And then later, larger tribal groups would do so, especially as imperial defenses weakened. These bands and tribes would then usually gradually assimilate into Roman society. They would be allowed to continue to live in imperial territory on certain terms, and many of them enlisted in the Roman army and in this way agreed to help defend the empire. So a weird sort of cycle developed where people would cross into the empire and then make an accommodation with the imperial authorities that involved trying to prevent more people from doing exactly what had just happened. As the third century crisis wore on, and often armies and their generals would abandon their posts and rush to Rome to take part in power struggles, more of these barbarian groups started to attack more aggressively and to take advantage of these weaknesses. So they would attack, cross find sometimes towns, villages, small outposts, and extort them opportunistically, particularly for gold, which, as we said, was a tremendously important material for barbarian society. Why did they do this? Why did these Germanic groups start pressing upon the Roman borders at this time in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries? Well, it seems the biggest reasons included population growth, changing climate or ecology. Their numbers were growing, and they were moving out of their older homelands and seeking more land. Another possible reason is that the Huns, this people, this tribal confederation that began in Central Asia, was already starting to press westward into Europe. And as they did so, they were probably attacking and scattering tribes before them, which then went further west, causing a kind of chain reaction, and eventually leading some of these Germanic groups to go all the way to the Roman border and cross into Roman territory for land and safety. Chronicles written by descendants of these invading Germanic peoples point particularly towards population growth as the original reason for this massive migration. And you'll see that they often use similar metaphors likening the barbarian groups to wild animals who multiply and then set out from their original homes or dens to conquer more territories. And a really beautiful example of this is the beginning of the History of the Goths, which is a chronicle written in the early 500s by a scholar named Jordanes, who was himself a Goth. This was his ancestry, and he was living in Constantinople. And he wrote this history to try to demonstrate that the Gothic people were a people with a history, right, and with 
achievements and culture on a respectable, even plane with the Greeks and the Romans. But he begins this chronicle, quote, Now from this island of Skanza, as from a hive of races or a womb of nations, the Goths are said to have come forth long ago under their king, Berig by name. So he's likening these people to like bees coming out of a hive. And he describes their original homeland as a womb of nations giving birth to peoples. And he refers to their original home as the island of Skanza. And we don't know for sure exactly where that was. And other documents actually have conflicting accounts. But it's generally believed that when Jordanus uses that ancient name, he's referring to the island in the Baltic that we call Gothland, right, or land of the Goths. And apparently their population was growing. They were multiplying. And so they started to set out and cross southward across the Baltic, landing around what's now Germany, Poland, Lithuania. And from there began to raid and conquered down southward through Eastern Europe towards the Danube. There's a very similar passage, I think, at the beginning of the Chronicle, written by a scholar in Britain named Gildas, who, like Jordanus, was descended from these Germanic invaders. And he writes, quote, a pack of cubs burst forth from the lair of the barbarian lioness. They would live for 300 years in the land toward which their prows were directed, and for half the time they would repeatedly lay it waste. So again, you see him describing these people as sort of animals, and he, he imagines them having an ancestress who is a lioness, the barbarian lioness, much like the Romans see their founders, Romulus and Remus, as the sons of a she-wolf, right, who suckled at the breast of a wolf. So in many ways, you, they may be spinning stories that liken them to the Romans, but that also probably draw on an ancient mythological and folkloric belief in the power of animals, right? And we see this in their art as well, that the jewels, the, the great artwork of the barbarian peoples depict powerful animals like lions and eagles. Hence, these accounts, they emphasize the fearsomeness and the power of these peoples. In our eyes, that might come across as savage and base, but from their point of view, maybe they were glorifying the power of these Germanic peoples. Nonetheless, it does seem to be accurate, more or less, that these peoples came in by sea and then found new lands on the shores of either the Baltic or the North Sea and then set forth inland until they began conquering Roman territory. What did they want when they did reach Roman territory and cross the border, what was their goal? Well, there were several things they wanted. One was gold, right? As I said, this was the main prize that was valuable enough for them to bother obtaining and then lugging back to their villages and encampments. And it had enormous value. They would make it into extraordinary artworks that often symbolized, like, like armbands that symbolized ties and loyalties to a tribe or to a chieftain. 
They also wanted land, right? Their populations were getting bigger. They were spreading out. They were accustomed to living a spread out lifestyle. And probably they were filling up the territory that was available to them in Northern and Eastern Europe. They couldn't stay there. They maybe were unsafe because of increasing attacks from the Huns or other Eastern peoples. So they wanted land where they could live, farm, hunt. A third thing that they wanted was inclusion in Roman civilization. They were impressed, they admired the Roman world, and they wanted to be accepted into it. So it seems that these migrations, whatever their exact motivations, these migrations escalated very slowly, little by little, over the course of 200 years, from the late 100s through the mid-300s. And then there was a major turning point when we know for sure that the Huns came onto the scene. And the Huns were comparatively a more brutal, more aggressive tribe. So the Huns attacked the Goths by no later than 369. And by that time, the Goths had largely migrated down and concentrated themselves close along the Danube in what's now the area of Austria, Hungary, Romania. And when the Huns strike and attack them very violently and frighteningly in 369 and the early 370s, the Goths flee. It's not worth it for them to fight back within the territory So they split in two strategically, and one half goes westward along the Danube Valley, and another group goes south and southeastward across the Danube into Roman provinces. And these two groups that split apart come to be called Western Goths and Eastern Goths, or in the language of the time, Visigoths and Ostrogoths. The Goths who crossed over the Danube naturally came into conflict with the Roman forces. And the Goths basically judged that it was easier for them to fight and try to defeat the Romans than it was to cross back and face the Huns. So the Goths engaged in a massive battle against Roman armies under the command of the Roman Emperor Valens at Adrianople in 378. And the Goths win a major victory, and the emperor is actually killed. So after the Gothic victory at Adrianople, the Goths move in basically unstoppably, and the Romans are forced to come to terms with the Goths, basically allowing them to settle and rule over a section of the eastern Balkans in return for helping to defend the imperial boundaries against possible coming attack by the Huns. So the Goths and the Romans basically both realize that it's better for them to join forces and face. Also, the Roman defeat at Adrianople showed the potential weakness of the empire and helped to encourage other groups to then follow in their wake, such as those that I mentioned, Vandals, Franks, Alemanni, Suevi. These various groups, as they move into the empire and manage to extort gold and land uh, within the Roman boundaries, they're often then drawn into the feuds and fights among Roman officials and generals themselves. 
and many of them then serve in battles where one Roman general is trying to defeat someone else whom they see as an illegitimate claimant for the throne or a rebel. And once they offer their service in these internal wars and battles in the empire or in battles against other barbarians, they then expect rewards, right? They expect offices, titles, land, and tribute. And when they don't receive the rewards to which they think they are entitled, they then often raid and pillage. And this became an increasing common cycle in the 300s and the 400s when it was very difficult for the empire to pay and maintain all of their military forces, let alone pay additional tribute to these barbarian mercenaries, or federati, as they were sometimes called. And it seems that this is what happened in the early 400s, when the Gothic king Alaric was incensed because he helped to defeat the Huns. He helped the Romans to defeat the Huns. And he expected regular payments of tribute and shows of respect in return for this service. And when the Romans stopped paying after 402, he marched his army down southwestward into Italy in order to threaten and demand that tribute. And when none was offered, he led his troops down, besieged Rome, tried to extort money from the city, and then finally simply sacked the city and pillaged for three days in a row in the year 410. So this was the first time that Rome itself had been directly attacked in centuries. And this was a shocking and unusual occurrence. But from the historical point of view, we can see how basically what happened is the same cycle of breakdown that had been happening around the perimeter of the empire had now made its way all the way to the core. And even after the sack of Rome, the city did continue to exert some degree of control over much of the Western Empire, and they did continue to make these sorts of arrangements with barbarian groups, giving tribute or autonomy over certain territories in return for help in defending the city. And these Germanic fighters ended up being really critical in saving what was left of the empire against the Huns. And for generations, they had been uh, attacking outer Roman fortresses and settlements and extorting gold from them. But beginning in the 430s, under a new ruler named Attila, they started actively and directly invading the empire and inflicting horror and destruction on many Roman settlements. In the year 451, Attila invaded Gaul, so this really central province close to Italy, and was only finally defeated by a combined Roman and Gothic army. So the Goths were critical here alongside the Romans in stopping the Hunnic invasion. Attila then turned southward into Italy, and it seems that he was preparing to attack Rome. But reportedly, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, met Attila on the road, said something to him, and persuaded him to turn back without attacking the city. So the invasion of the Huns, it caused a great deal of destruction, and it also led 
to the final transfer of power to new groups and institutions that had been growing in influence little by little. One was the barbarian rulers, which were now particularly powerful in the provinces and were basically understood to be a major guarantee of the security of those provinces. It was really no longer the Romans in control of these places like Gaul, but these Germanic tribes like the Goths. And secondly, the church, which I'll talk about more later. The Christian church increasingly was the real authority in the city of Rome itself and in many other cities too. So the takeover and transition of power from the Roman imperial authorities to the barbarians and to the church was possible not really because the barbarians were so numerous, but rather probably because of the politics on the ground. The majority of people throughout the empire were poor peasants and many slaves. And those peasants and slaves didn't particularly care about Rome. In fact, there were many rebellions all through the later Roman era, but they were very important and their labor was needed to keep society functioning. So as Roman authority gradually broke down, probably the barbarians were able to move in and set up control over large areas because from the point of view of the peasants, they were a new source of security. They had something to offer that increasingly Rome couldn't provide. The final formal end of the Western Empire, as I said, came in 476 when the young and incompetent emperor Romulus Augustulus was deposed by a general named Odoacer, who happened to be a Germanic barbarian by birth. And he closed up the imperial jewels and sent them to Constantinople and declared himself the king of Rome. So this event in 476, you can see as a kind of watershed. It wasn't really a big change. In many ways, the same processes continued through the 400s, and a lot of Roman practices, laws, beliefs continued on. But in this way, really, the door was open for all kinds of barbarian rulers to put themselves forward as formal, legitimate authorities in the absence of a Roman emperor. Some of these barbarian rulers, it seems, actually became, you could say, part of the empire, part of a new rebranded Roman empire, and took up the titles of governors, right, in the Roman style, governors of zones or concessions along the Roman frontiers. And their titles and modes of rule show a peculiar blending of Roman and Germanic or tribal authority. A really big and important example of this that we know of, thanks to archaeology, is the Frankish ruler Childeric, who apparently died in the year 482, so after the overthrow of Romulus Augustulus. There are surviving documents from the 5th century that refer to Childeric both as a king and as a governor of the province of Belgica, 
which basically is the modern-day Belgium and far northern France. So Childeric was a ruler from this ancient Germanic group, the Franks. And when he died in 482, he had a massive funeral involving the burial of a tremendous hoard of treasure, the sacrifice of animals, and all kinds of valuables that were placed around his grave. And all of this is, of course, unlike the Roman tradition, where usually you would cremate. This trove of treasure around his grave was discovered in Belgium in in 1652, right? So comparatively recently. And it was a tremendous revelation to find these objects that tell so much about the art, the technology, the belief systems of these Germanic people who did not keep any written records. The artwork shows combined Roman and Germanic artistic styles, and the most important artifact among all the great gold jewels and vessels and glassware, the most important object is a signet ring that was on Childeric's finger when he was buried. And the signet ring is made of gold with an intaglio portrait of the king and an inscription surrounding the portrait, basically in the Roman style, right? This is what you might see on the hand of a Roman emperor or governor. The inscription on the ring is Childerici Regis, which is in Latin, the Roman language, but it uses the title Regis, meaning king, right? Not, Not governor, not emperor, but king, which right there in and of itself shows a sort of new fusion of Roman and Germanic terms. The portrait on the signet ring shows Childeric wearing a Roman-style general's cloak, but with shoulder-length hair. Long hair is something you would never see on a formal portrait of any Roman ruler. Rather, it's something that seems to have been symbolic and important to Germanic peoples, particularly the Franks. Long hair was considered a sort of connection to the divine. Uh, the, as Wells points out, you can see the sort of enduring symbolic importance of long hair in European folklore, like in the story of Rapunzel. There are stories also from later Frankish chronicles where rulers who wanted to depose their relatives or take away their royal status would do so not by killing them or by blinding them, as the Byzantines might do, but simply by cutting off their long hair. In his grave, Childeric wore a cloak sewn with 300 gold and glass bees. So it seems that there was some sort of connection again between the idea of the beehive and the power of the king over his tribe. Jordanus's Chronicle of the Goths starts by describing their homeland as a hive. So incidentally, many centuries later, when Napoleon wanted to crown himself as emperor of France, he didn't want to use the symbols and emblems of the Bourbon dynasty, whom he didn't want to recognize as legitimate. So instead, he adopted golden bees and also had gold bees sewn onto his robe before he was crowned as a way of sort of connecting himself to this ancient Frankish ruler. So we know that Childeric died in 482, and he was succeeded by his son Clovis. And Clovis apparently 
engaged in battle and defeated the last remaining Roman forces in Gaul, thus consolidating Frankish rule over the entire territory, basically of what we now call France, right, or Francia, the the kingdom of the Franks. He also, several years later, converted to Christianity. And he did this probably for a number of reasons, one of which was that it would bolster his legitimacy among his subjects who still considered themselves Romans. So by this time, Christianity was the main religion of Rome and the Roman world, and converting to Christianity was a way for barbarian groups like the Franks under Clovis to show that they were civilized and Romanized. This territory ruled over by Clovis did not really last very long. Rather, it was divided up among his different heirs in accordance with Frankish customs, where a a chieftain's estate would be divided up rather than passed whole to the eldest son. And unfortunately, this custom led to frequent feuding among competing heirs who want to rule over an entire domain undivided. So really, in effect, this early Frankish empire under Clovis's dynasty became chaotic and existed in name only, right? It fell into division and dissension with many small wars, skirmishes, assassinations, back and forth. Hence, not surprisingly, the officials who ran the royal court and the palace, sometimes called the palace mayors, really gradually built up their own power and became the real leaders and rulers of society behind the throne. And this eventually led to a palace mayor named Pepin the Short, the son of the war hero Charles Martel, being crowned as king in the year 741 and founding what we now call the Carolingian dynasty. Meanwhile, at the same time, it seems that Childeric and Clovis were ruling in Gaul, or France, as it came to be called, Another series of Germanic rulers took control in Italy. So I mentioned that the last emperor, Romulus Augustulus, was overthrown by Odoacer in 476. And Odoacer basically disavowed any connection to the old Roman Empire. But that doesn't mean the Roman Empire was necessarily over in the East or the West. There were still the Eastern Roman emperors ruling from Constantinople, and they resented the fact that Odoacer didn't recognize their authority and didn't consider himself to be a Roman. So they made a deal with a powerful Gothic king named Theodoric, and who later came to be called Theodoric the Great. And basically, Theodoric offered to try to overthrow Odoacer and reassert the Byzantines' claim to Italy as Roman territory. So Theodoric, the leader of the Ostrogoths, made a deal with the Byzantines, and with their blessing, he invaded Italy, successfully defeated and overthrew Odoacer, and set up an Ostrogothic kingdom, which included basically all of Italy and a lot of what's now Yugoslavia, east of the Adriatic. And Theodoric made a point of trying to restore Roman society. 
He set about improving and restoring the infrastructure. He set about reforming the civil service and trying to stamp out corruption that was rife in Roman administration. It seems that Theodoric was quite proud and boasted of his role as a restorer and conservator of Roman life. And he wrote in one of his diplomatic messages, quote, We delight to live after the law of the Romans, whom we seek to defend, and we are as much interested in the maintenance of morality as we can possibly be in war. For what profit is there in having removed the turmoil of the barbarians, unless we live according to law? So you can see here Theodoric doesn't see himself as a barbarian at all. The Ostrogothic kingdom under Theodoric also supported art and architecture, and there are great monuments still standing in Italy built under the patronage of Theodoric, such as the Basilica of San Vitale at Ravenna with its magnificent mosaics and frescoes. It seems uh, San Vitale was one of the first architectural monuments that adapted the Roman basilica form with the large sort of central hall and apse in the back, adapted that to Christian worship and hence sort of laid the foundation for the look and style of the early Middle Ages. Eventually, in the 530s, the sort of diplomatic deal between Theodoric and the Byzantines broke down, and there were disputes over how much power and authority the Byzantine emperors properly had over Italy. And eventually, the Byzantine emperor Justinian sent in his great general Belisarius to invade Italy and seize control of the whole peninsula. And this led to 20 years of exhausting back-and-forth war over control of Rome and central Italy. And the Byzantines gradually did defeat and roll back the Ostrogoths, but even once they did so, the country had been so drained and so damaged by these decades of warfare that it ultimately wasn't even worth it for them to continue to hold and occupy it. And they simply abandoned it and basically left control of the country to the Pope, right? who was now sort of, you could say, the last man standing, the only authority that could maintain law and order. And the Popes, in the wake of the withdrawal of the Byzantines, were mostly pretty unremarkable and not terribly effective, until Gregory the Great, who became Pope after 590, and who increasingly asserted his leadership not only over the city of Rome and the surrounding territories, but over the entire Western Church all around this world that had been the Western Roman Empire. And it's largely because of Gregory the Great that Rome and the papacy really became the sort of symbolic center of authority for this entire new civilization. And that was possible, again, because Christianity had really percolated through these countries and increasingly become the predominant religion all around the Latin West. So at the time when the Franks were coming to power in Gaul and the Goths in Italy, other invading Germanic groups had been sort of forced to press further westward and southward. 
for one thing, the Vandals passed all the way through Gaul and Spain, and eventually, in search of territory that they could hold and exploit, they eventually crossed the Mediterranean and landed in North Africa and set up a somewhat long-lasting and stable kingdom in North Africa, what's now Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. Many of them also, their rulers restored and embellished Roman monuments like baths. They also supported Christianity. And this is the kingdom that continued to exist and maintain a reasonable degree of stability and prosperity until the arrival of the Islamic invaders. And the other group of Goths, the Visigoths that I mentioned before, they settled for a time in Gaul and assisted in the defeat of Attila the Hun before they then were pushed southward into basically Spain and Portugal. And they created a Visigothic Christian kingdom in Spain and Portugal, which also developed its own artistic styles, its own architecture. And so for several hundred years, you had a period of somewhat stable, coexisting kingdoms. And the map of Europe started to look more and more like what we would see today, with an Ostrogothic kingdom in Italy, a Frankish kingdom in France, a Visigothic kingdom of Spain and Portugal. Now, how did Christianity rise to become the main shared religion and philosophy of this whole new world? Well, there was a period of rapid spread of Christianity under Roman rule, right? It had grown already to be a significant minority religion by 300. It was then legalized and promoted by the Emperor Constantine. And Christians were able to use the Roman infrastructure, the extensive roads, the sea lanes, the large towns and cities, to spread the religion, particularly in the urban centers. Then it seems there was something of a retreat of Christianity as the Roman Empire finally broke down and trade and travel along Roman roads diminished. And there are many places where apparently Christianity actually declined somewhat and older uh, customs related to Celtic or Germanic gods had a bit of a comeback. But even still, there was then another resurgence and Christianity, you could say, struck back in the 500s, 600s as the Christian church became more organized and put people and resources into intentional missionism. Right? And this is the beginnings of Christian missionary activity in Europe. The missionaries would travel around to these new kingdoms and principalities set up around the continent, and they would often target important people, elites who could influence others, especially when they could royal families or rulers themselves. And as it was the case with Clovis, he, he had members of his immediate family who were Christian, and his own embrace of Christianity was a way to gain some legitimacy and prestige. Nonetheless, it can be a bit deceptive and misleading to think that when a ruler converted and officially changed their kingdom's religion to Christianity, that that meant the whole society immediately switched over. 
Rather, these official conversions were often just superficial or symbolic. And in fact, the beliefs and practices of most people changed only very slowly. And it was a gradual two steps forward, one step back process. And the success of Christianity depended a lot on intentional missionism that was based first and foremost in monasteries. And monasticism was really the crucial strategy that helped Christianity in this great spiritual conquest of the West. The two big centers of monastic life, and hence the two big bases of missionism, were Italy and Ireland. And each of these countries had their own sort of model of monasteries. So monasticism developed gradually from single hermits who at some point embraced a sort of Christian ascetic lifestyle and would go out to live alone in the wilderness or in the desert. You know, St. Anthony of Egypt led this movement of living in isolation in the Egyptian desert. Eventually, this developed into small groups who might live in isolated locations, islands, forest groves, in some sort of loose cooperation And then eventually this developed into organized and regularized institutions, particularly under the leadership of St. Benedict, who was an Italian monk who went to live in the wilderness in southern Italy in the early 500s, but who quite unintentionally attracted a circle of followers around him who wanted to observe and imitate his way of life. And he was finally pressured into creating and leading a formalized monastery at Monte Cassino, a hill near Naples in southern Italy in the year 520. So Benedict and his rule laid the groundwork for so-called Benedictine monastic life, which spread through Europe from Italy. But there also was an alternate, rather different form of monasticism that developed around the same time in Ireland, which was really the first country outside of Roman territory to embrace Christianity. And Irish monks called Anchorites would go out and live in even greater isolation and looser sort of confederation as compared to the Benedictines in Italy. And a lot of these Anchorites would sort of set out alone to spread the Christian message or just to go through suffering and isolation, as the case may be. But some of them, such as St. Columban, set out intentionally to create more monasteries on the Irish model and use them as sort of frontier fortresses or bases for spreading the Christian religion. And Columban famously took the religion to Scotland, set up in a very important abbey at Iona. And then some of his disciples later on, such as Columbanus, then traveled to the European continent and set up more monasteries in Gaul. So for much of the Dark Ages, you had a kind of uneasy coexistence and competition between Latin Christianity spread by the Benedictine-style monasteries and Celtic Christianity spread from these Irish-style monasteries. 
Monasticism had a lot of advantages for early medieval society that probably helped it to succeed. One was a stabilizing effect. If you're recruiting a lot of monks and encouraging high-class families to contribute sons to these monasteries, you're cutting back on the number of fighting men that are available for war and raiding and pillaging. So in a very sort of similar way to how the Mongols in the 1600s adopted Buddhism and then enacted laws mandating that a certain number of men become monks, in the same way in Europe, monasticism helped to put a certain stream of men into an environment where they could not bear arms and they could not engage in fighting. And this had a stabilizing effect. But it's also significant to note that this whole process of the rise of monasticism would have been impossible if there was constant warfare and chaos. These monasteries would not have been safe. The men would have had to be armed and they would have had to fortify. The monasteries also provided safe places for learning and study and artwork. And it's largely in the monasteries that intellectual and artistic life were carried on. There were important scholars, such as historians and geographers and philosophers, including uh, Alcuin, who was an abbot from the British Isles who went to Gaul, and also Bede, sometimes called the Venerable Bede, who was a monk in Britain and wrote a history of Britain, including its process of Christianization. So those scholars are much studied now because of the information that they provide about their world and the history of the early Middle Ages. But they weren't necessarily the most studied and known at the time. Rather, that was Boethius. And Boethius was a Roman politician who served in various offices in the city of Rome under the rule of Theodoric in the early 500s, but he was reportedly imprisoned, accused of treason in 524, and probably afterwards executed. But while he was in prison, he wrote a book called The Consolation of Philosophy, which describes his own conversations with Lady Philosophy, who embodies sort of the spirit of philosophy, and who shows him visions of the wheel of fortune, which determines men's fate by a sort of random chance, like a giant roulette wheel that determines whether you are powerful or weak, successful or failed, and whether you live or die, like in Boethius's own case. And the consolation of philosophy is a sort of beautiful crystallization of Stoic philosophy, the philosophy of drawing happiness and satisfaction from your own virtue and your own goodness without regard to the vicissitudes of fortune. And it seems that this book was widely copied and taught and studied all through the medieval era. And it was a philosophy that perhaps was appealing or comforting to people who did see a lot of political uncertainty and fragmentation in their world as opposed to the earlier era. But regardless of this, the monasteries were important more so just because they set up small schools and taught literacy, right? About 90% 
of the people who were literate in the early Middle Ages learned at these monastic schools, and they encouraged the continuation of learning and philosophy, as well as a new set of virtues and a kind of new morality, emphasizing modesty, chastity, self-discipline, charity, and self-sacrifice, and that cultivated these sort of virtues that were important for fostering a stable and cohesive society, uh, rather than the sort of heroic virtues of the warrior, which were important both to Romans and to barbarians. The monasteries also created and cultivated important art forms, especially the new art of book illumination and illustration. And as I mentioned, the magnificent Book of Kells was created in Ireland, the Lindisfarne Gospels a little bit later in England, but there are many examples, and this art form would continue to evolve through the Middle Ages in Bibles, prayer books, books of hours, and helped eventually to inspire and feed into the artistic renaissance. The monasteries also carried on laborious copying and translation of ancient works, whether those be Greek and Roman classics, the Bible, uh, other early Christian writings, writings by church fathers, Origen, Augustine, and so on. Many texts were also lost because it took so much work to copy and maintain these books, and they could be lost to fire, warfare, etc. And it does seem that there was a bias where the monks tended to prefer to copy over either Christian works or works by authors like Plato that were seen to sort of harmonize with rather than clash with Christian teachings. Probably there, there was no campaign to wipe out works that the church disapproved of, but rather there was a pattern where works that were problematic, that were seen as vulgar, that dealt with sexuality, that conflicted with Christian cosmology, were put at the bottom of their priority list and eventually were lost. The monasteries provided a refuge of safety and relief and support for the vulnerable, such as the elderly, the very poor, the mentally ill or disabled, right? And many of these monasteries, in addition to schools, they served as charity hospitals and shelters. And they provided a kind of leadership training and formation for church leaders, such as Pope Gregory, whom I mentioned before, who had been a monk, and they provided bases and training for missionism. And as I said, missionaries would often set out, travel around the continent, preach, seek out members of elites or royal families that could be converted. And in doing so, they often, although they might attack, such as uh, Martin of Tours famously might attack symbols of the old gods like sacred trees or groves, they also could often draw on or incorporate pre-Christian beliefs to help people transition to Christianity, such as missionaries who went into the northern Germanic lands would often emphasize the great fighting prowess of Old Testament heroes like David or even depict Christ himself as a kind of warrior 
and you can see early Christian literature like the Dream of the Rood that describes Christ as a kind of warrior. And there were many continuities and carryovers, it seems, of practices and symbols. There continued to be worship at ancient sacred sites connected to water, such as confluences of rivers or holy springs and holy wells. And some of these sites were simply taken over and became the locations of churches or chapels. They were just kind of rechristened. There continued to be rituals such as throwing valuable objects like swords into rivers. And it seems this goes back thousands of years. It maybe has something to do with making an offering to gods or spirits associated with the river. And that seems to have continued right through the Dark Age and the Middle Ages. And there was even, it seems, specific and intentional reuse of temple materials in churches. And there are instances of early Christian churches in France, for example, where villagers would go far and wide to obtain artworks, statues, building materials specifically from pagan temples to then embellish the churches, not not their homes, not villas, not markets, but churches. And so hence in these early churches you see images like Bellerophon, the Greek hero who slayed a dragon, being reused and maybe reinterpreted as Christian figures. And likewise, it seems goddess cults devoted to goddesses of fertility were then adapted and incorporated into the worship of St. Mary, which became more and more popular in the Dark Age. So as I said, in the Roman era, most people were rural peasants, slaves, or farmers of some sort. But there were also cities and towns and trade among these cities and towns. And that did probably decline somewhat, in the Dark Age, but not as much as one might assume. There continued to be significant urban life and trade, and many Roman cities such as Milan in Italy, Narbo in France, Cologne in Germany, London in Britain, Tarragona in Spain, continued to thrive right through the late Roman era, through what we call now late antiquity. And there also was emergence of new important towns and cities in the far north, in areas that had previously had no urban life. And these were probably fed and strengthened by the increasing northward trade now that there was no hard border along the Danube and the Rhine. So there was extensive trade and movement of goods now all around what we now think of as Western Europe from towns to countryside, from town to town, from region to region, and even continent to continent. And a really striking example, which shows the extent and effectiveness of these trade networks, is that at the town of Helgo, a Dark Age village located on an island in a lake in the middle of Sweden, archaeologists have found a bronze sculpture of the Buddha seated on a lotus, which was made in India, and probably made its way along trade routes to the Mediterranean and then through Europe up to all the way to Scandinavia. And this only makes sense because there are other materials that are very widespread in Dark Age art and crafts 
that probably also came all the way from Asia. And the most important of these is garnet. So if one looks at Dark Age art, like the Sutton Hoo treasure or other small hoards that have been found, or even just stray objects left in houses and villages around Europe, you see artwork in gold and other precious metals and inset with garnet, which is a deep red precious crystal, sort of like ruby but darker. And some of that garnet was probably obtained from small supplies in Europe, but more of it most likely came from Asia, areas like Afghanistan, and were traded all the way to Europe. And it seems that there was a very sophisticated and stable garnet trade that developed across the whole region, where raw, uncut garnet would make its way into Europe. It would be brought to large hub workshops where there were highly skilled workers who could cut and mold the garnet into forms appropriate for jewels. Those cut garnets would then apparently be traded out to smaller hub workshops around the countryside in smaller towns or villages, where they then would be incorporated into gold. And this sort of trade and this sort of network made possible extraordinary artworks in new styles that blended different influences and evolved over time. So you can see in the jewels, in the mosaics from these years, a combination of Christian icons together with a growing animal style, a more and more sophisticated emphasis on different sorts of animals, eagle heads, lions and lionesses, and this, and also royal emblems that borrowed both Christian and Roman, as well as Germanic elements. A very common art form was body ornaments, especially fibulae, which is the Latin word for large brooches that one could use to affix one's garments, such as uh, clasping a toga or, or a cloak over the shoulder. And a lot of these fibulae apparently were made for upper-class people, for chieftains who then later became lords, but also many just for commoners, it seems, as well. They can be found in people's villages, homes, around hearths, and so on. The artwork of this time showed a great love of patterns, right? Attention-grabbing and mesmerizing designs, right? As opposed to sort of balanced or open or naturalistic styles like you might see in Roman statuary. Instead, there was an emphasis on vine work, on scroll work, tessellating geometric patterns, these things that can kind of impress the eye and fix one's attention, especially when they're on a dazzling bright material like gold or gemstones. And this sort of vine work and scroll work also shows up in the new art forms like book illumination. So who were these people who were creating and then buying or trading or using these artworks? The people who migrated into the old Roman Empire gradually settled and melded little by little with the local populations who might be Latin or Celtic. And they gathered in small villages or maintained existing Roman villages. And these small villages needed protection. So a local chieftain or warlord would often 
form a sort of network of alliances, more or less similar to the older pattern where a band or comitatus would form around a Germanic tribal chieftain. And the sort of alliances and relationships that these chieftains and warlords formed might be more equal, or they might be more hierarchical with sort of lower level band leaders swearing fealty and obedience to some higher lord. And over time, it seems a custom formed of formalized oaths of fealty. The system that emerged is sometimes called feudalism, but that's really a later term that only became common in the 1700s. So it's anachronistic. And when we talk about feudalism, it's sometimes depicted as a sort of complete social pyramid with various authorities owing military obedience to higher and higher lords, ultimately leading to the king at the top of the pyramid. But this is really misleading. It, it was not so planned or complete as that picture suggests. Rather, there were many ties of loyalty and fealty that led off in various different directions or just to nowhere and terminated with this or that sort of regional potentate and not necessarily to the king. And the king drew his power not from this sort of supposed chain of feudal oaths, but rather to the fact that he was the king and he had a special ceremonial and semi-divine importance to all of society drawn from that title of kingship. The way we think about feudalism is really very misleading and it, it probably doesn't apply well at all. Rather, what we see is not a new system, but rather the lack of a system. The fact that there was no completely reliable central state authority and rather order had to be improvised out of personal relationships, whether those be equal or hierarchical. As for within the villages themselves that these people were leading or protecting in some way, with the Roman infrastructure largely broken down, unmaintained, there was a need for both localized security and more localized production, right? Moving materials, although it still happened and there was extensive trade, it was probably a lot more expensive and unreliable and hence, it, was, it only really made sense to trade far and wide for very valuable luxury items that were easy to carry and that were not totally necessary for life. So when it came to food or clothing or these sorts of basic necessities, there was a much greater demand for direct local production. And hence, these villages combined together with a lord's household and probably a Christian chapel or church, formed a sort of self-sufficient unit, a largely self-sufficient unit that we have come to call the manor, right? So you would have a lord, maybe his household, maybe a certain number of fighting men who owed, owed him fealty, and then you would have ordinary common people living and farming. So the manor, you can see, is more or less a sort of combination of the old Roman village together with the villa, the Roman villa, the sort of country estate of an aristocrat that banded together for mutual defense and supply of necessities. And the manor usually included a cluster or lane of peasant 
family cottages, each of which would have a small plot with gardens and probably some domestic animals. It would have a few workshops, particularly a potter to make ceramics and a blacksmith to work metals, and sometimes some others, possibly powered by a water mill, which became more and more common. Around the village and the manor house would be large fields that were usually divided up into small strips that a single family could then plow, right? You'd have long, narrow strips that would be easier and quicker to plow, perhaps with the horses or a team of oxen. Alongside these enclosed fields for farming grain, there would also be open, unenclosed fields for pasturage. These undivided fields were considered commons. Anyone in the village could have access, particularly to graze their animals. And in areas with a lot of grassland, you would particularly raise a lot of sheep and goats, whereas in more forested areas, you would have more pigs and cattle that could be led around to forage in the woods or the thicket. Somewhere near the village, you'd also have probably a chapel or perhaps a parish church, if it was big enough, with its own priest. And maybe some other holy site, such as a sacred grove or a well, probably nearby the church. You would have a manor house that might be somewhat larger, built of stone or brick with some degree of security and some grounds around it. And in some places, if it was an important enough manor, the Lord might create a small primitive castle, a mot and bailey made of earthworks and wooden palisades to take refuge in when under attack. It seems that the people who lived in these villages had a fairly healthy diet and lifestyle where they ate staple foods like bread and drank ale made from the grain. But in addition to this, also had a fairly wide variety of fruits, vegetables, meat, dairy, and wild plants and mushrooms that could be foraged around the common forests or fields. And that provided a pretty fresh and healthy diet. And it seems that people at this time whose remains have been found had fairly good height and pretty good bone health, more so than peasants would have later, as I said, in the late Middle Ages or even the early modern era. And Wells actually argues that many of the people in the Dark Age actually seem to have been taller and healthier than their descendants would be until the 20th century. And this sort of lifestyle where people were able to live with a fairly good, varied diet and even have some degree of luxuries like pottery, glassware, uh, jewelry, this was possible because of a technological revolution in agriculture that massively increased the productivity of these farms. So, as I said, there was a need to exploit and maximize what you could gain from local resources, including the limited amount of land that a small number of people could farm and protect. And in trying to increase their productivity, it seems that common people, probably just peasants, made a number of very important inventions. 
Firstly, the moldboard plow. So the moldboard plow replaced the older simple scratch plow, where you would basically just have a long wood pole attached to some kind of heavy object, and an ox or a team of oxen would pull it across a field just in order to tear through the topsoil and make it possible then to plant seeds that would germinate. Well, the moldboard plow, instead of just the one blade of a scratch plow, it has at least two blades. Firstly, in front, a coulter, which is sharp and designed just to cut through the topsoil. And then a plow share, which is longer and digs deeper in order to pull up loam and bring it up to the surface. So sort of richer, more fertile, more moist soil comes up to the surface. And then finally behind that, you have a mold board, which is a sort of wide angled piece of wood to push aside large clods and give you a nice wide open furrow with soft plowed soil in which to plant. And the moldboard plow is massively more effective in quickly plowing up good, wide, and fertile furrows of soil, but it naturally gives you a lot more resistance as well, and it takes a lot more force to pull. A single ox usually can't do it, and a team of oxen, of course, are burdensome to maintain. So in addition, it seems Dark Age peasants invented the horse collar. So previous to this, it was impossible to yoke a horse and have it pull a plow because the yoke would choke the horse. It has a much more complex shaped neck rather than a sort of short neck and a strong shoulder like an ox. So peasants had to come up with a system for molding materials like wood and leather into a complicated symmetrical curvilinear shape that can rest around a horse's neck without choking it. And so the horse, which may have a lot more power and stamina, can pull your moldboard plow. And finally, even with the moldboard plow, peasants found that they often exhausted the fertility of soil, and they experimented with ways to maintain or replenish the fertility of their fields and get maximum use out of the land that they had. And so a technique of three-field rotation caught on, where the fields around the manor would be divided into three sections, and each year one section would be planted with staple grains, particularly wheat, another with other grains like alfalfa that might help to feed animals but also replenish some of the fertility, and then a third would be left fallow with weeds and thicket, and animals could also graze there and manure the field in order to really bring it back to full fertility before it was then planted again with wheat. So all of these techniques, the new plow, the horse collar, and three-field rotation, led to an explosion in food surpluses, which now made it possible for these villages and manors to actually have goods to sell in market towns and obtain other trade goods. And when we look into the excavated sites 
of these early medieval villages, we find some very fine pottery, good glassware, jewelry, uh, combs carved from bone, all of which were often finely made and very finely and intricately decorated in the current styles of this time. So if you met a Dark Age peasant in France or Germany or Italy, they might be living what they considered to be a very nice lifestyle with a diet and finely made possessions of which they were proud, and they could be quite blinged out to the degree that they could even look like a lord or a chieftain. And it seems that in this early period, although there was an emerging social hierarchy between manorial lords and vassals over peasants, nonetheless, their lifestyles were still pretty close. There wasn't as dramatic material difference between commoners and lords or even kings than there would be later when you have a huge gulf between wealthy aristocrats and the serfs under their rule. So in all of these ways, the life of the ordinary peasantry in the early Middle Ages does not fit at all with what we might be inclined to think, uh, where we might picture, you know, smoky, dark hovels with cold, emaciated broods of children sort of huddled around a hearth fire grasping at bread. It was not like that at all, based on the evidence we have. This mistaken perception may be particularly strong among Americans when we consider that these sorts of images probably come a lot from stories and depictions of disasters that happened in Europe much later, such as the Black Death or the Irish Potato Famine, which caused many immigrants to migrate from Europe to America. And I think there's a kind of, you could say, a sort of cultural memory that's been passed on among Americans of sort of the horrors of European peasant life, because that happens to be what many of our own ancestors were escaping. But we have to be careful to remember that Peasant life and rural life are always conditioned by historical circumstances, and we can't project modern occurrences back, especially now, when I think that there's an increasing interest, even a sort of lurid curiosity about what happened when the Roman Empire fell and a new society had to be constructed. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you can offer any support, please go to my Patreon page. And if you support at any level, you'll have access to my patron-only lectures, such as my recent one about the White Cradle, an important artifact of the Pilgrim Colony at Plymouth. And I should soon be editing and posting my conversation about history on television with my friend, the television critic, Sonia Soraya. Look out for that coming soon. Thank you. Thank you.